All right. Take something and mark Ecclesiastes, because we're going to be flipping there a lot, and into Proverbs, but we're going to be jumping around some other ones as well, just so you'll know where we're going. Tomorrow marks the 130th celebration of a Labor Day in the United States. Here's an interesting bit of trivia. On September 5th, 1882, the Central Labor Union of New York City sponsored a parade in which 10,000 workers took an unpaid, or emphasize that, unpaid day off to march from City Hall to Union Square. We're not quite sure where the idea came from. There's competition from either a Peter J. McGuire, he was the general secretary of the Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners and a co-founder of the American Federation of Labor. He wanted to honor those that, quote, who from rude nature have delved and carved all the grandeur we behold. Or it could have been from a fellow named Matthew McGuire, secretary of the Central Labor Union in New York City. didn't take long for the idea to catch on, the idea of a, a working man's holiday. Some cities recognized it by 1885, only three years later. Oregon was the first state to pass a law, 1887, that recognized it. Later that same year, the states of Colorado, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York passed laws recognizing within their states. By 1894, 23 other states had adopted some sort of workers' holiday, and then later the same year, Congress established the first Monday in September as a federal legal holiday. Well, we've been celebrating that ever since. A lot of you enjoy Labor Day, a day you can set aside some of your Labor Days. When it first became started, it was a lot of um, uh, parades and then speeches and then some sort of a um, recreation, a festival of recreation amusement for workers. I remember growing up as a little kid, my father was in the Carpenters Union, and we had an annual Carpenters picnic. I was little. All I really remember about it is we went to some park, and we played with other kids, and the Yellow Jackets always wanted to get in our soda so we'd get stung on the lips. That's what I remember about it, so it's not necessarily the best memory, uh, but we did something there. Well, now for most Americans, Labor Day simply marks the end of summer activities, and I'm sorry, kids, it's the beginning of the back-to-school season. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's what I expected. The parents, yes, back-to-school, and the kids are moaning. Every year it's the same. Well, in 1909, the American Federation of Labor adopted the Sunday preceding Labor Day as Labor Sunday, and they want it dedicated to the spiritual and educational aspects of the labor movement. Well, in keeping with that idea, I would like us to look at the scriptures to see what it says about labor. And the scriptures apply to everybody, employer and employee alike, no matter what you labor about. Now, work is one of those things that we have a love-hate relationship, or as one person put it, this way. Work is something that when we have it, we wish we didn't. When we don't, we wish we did, right? probably says more about the nature of man than the nature of work. Another fellow said, when it comes to work, some people will stop at nothing. Now think about that for a minute. They will stop at nothing. Why such a love and hate for work? Why is it that when we labor hard, we dream about being on vacation? And yet, as Anatole France put it, man is so made that he can only find relaxation 
from one kind of labor by taking up another. Interesting thought. The truth of that statement is seen of how many people can't wait to get from vacation to get back to work so they can get some rest because their vacation is very tiring for them. But we have a love-hate relationship with labor because there are two sides to it. We hate labor because it reminds us, or at least it should remind us, of the curse that we are under because of Adam's sin. We now live by the sweat of the brow instead of leisurely enjoying the fruits of the garden. At the same time, we find in the scriptures that labor can be nothing less than a gift from God to us. And so it is a great blessing. This morning, I want to look at both the curse and the blessing of labor and then delve into leisure, what we often think of as the opposite of labor. In Genesis chapter 3, we find the account of how labor became a curse. And you recall Adam and Eve were giving one command by God that was a prohibition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden for the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, Eve was deceived by the serpent. She ate from it. Then she gave to Adam. He ate of it, and mankind plummeted into sin. Ever since then, every single one of us born has a sin nature. It goes directly back to Adam. We inherit it. We have a bent to disobey God, to do things our way rather than his. Well, Genesis chapter 3 tells us about the curses that were laid upon us. There was first the curse upon Eve. There was a curse upon the serpent. And then starting in verse 17, it tells us about the curse upon Adam and the ground. Look at verse 17, Genesis 3. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Now here's the curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's the curse of labor. Ever since Adam's fall, man has to earn his living by the sweat of his face while fighting against a cursed earth. But before the fall, Adam and Eve still had labor. They tended the garden, but it did not require that kind of sweat that gardening requires now. They did not have to contend with weeds like we do now. And all those who garden, whether it's flowers or vegetables, you know the curse of weeds by experience. It always seems that weeds grow a whole lot better than whatever it is that you planted. And remember that basically a definition I got in my weed class, I was an ag major, remember, and I actually had a class in weeds. And we had a simple definition. A weed is a plant out of place. If you're growing peas and corn is growing there, the corn is a weed. But no matter what crop you're planting, whatever was there before seems to grow better than what you just planted. They're weeds. That's part of the God's curse. And so it's not just this toil of laboring, the sweat of it. It's fighting against this cursed earth. It's also laboring harder than finding you may have little or nothing to show from it. This is part of Adam's curse. Now, Ecclesiastes has quite a few statements that deal with this, both in the positive and the negative part. I'm going to start at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10. 
Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10. Solomon laments here about the vanity of life when it's lived apart from God. Here's a statement about labor. And I'm uh, reading from uh, Darby's version because he tends to use the word labor rather than work or something else, and that's what we're really talking about. And whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept nothing from them. I did not withhold from my heart any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that it had cost me to do them. Behold, all was vanity in pursuit of the wind. There was no profit under the sun. That can cause you to despair if you stayed with that. Look over to chapter 6, verse 7. He makes a more succinct statement. Verse 7. All man's labor is for his mouth, yet the appetite is not satisfied. That's a good description of labor, isn't it? No matter how much you may achieve, there is always this feeling that it's not enough. There is more to do, more to achieve, more to accomplish. Our satisfaction is brief. It ends up being vanity. That's part of the curse. In addition, what you do gain by your labor cannot be taken with you. Or worse, who do you leave it to? Flip back to chapter 2. Look at verse 18. Here's what he said. And I hated all my labor wherewith I had been toiling under the sun because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. Yet shall he have rule over all my labor at which I have labored and wherein I have been wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. And yet to a man that hath not labored, it shall be, he shall leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. That is part of the curse upon man. Your life's work gets left to somebody else. And what will they do with it? You have no control. Now, all of us are personally acquainted with this part of the curse of labor, right? We've all been there. We all are there. The satisfaction is temporary. You can't take it with you. Someone else reaps the benefit of all your work. Or you labor hard and you see it collapse in front of you and nothing comes to it. That's hard. Some of you have had projects you've worked on, you put a lot of time and effort in, and then the boss cancels the project before it goes into fruition. That's frustrating. Like, what did I spend all this time doing this for? Or how about worse? You labor on it, and you finally get it ready, and someone else breaks it for you. Does that ever frustrate you? How about you parents making toys for your kids at Christmas, and by Christmas evening, half of them are broken? You labored hard, and they're already broken. When I was 19, I spent all summer hand-sanding and refinishing a 1966 Mustang. My dad kept saying, it's an old car. Here's my sander. Get it done. We'll do it in one day and have it painted next weekend. No, Dad. It's going to be good. All summer long, hours and hours and hours, day in, day out. When I got back from work, I hand-sanded that thing, cherried it out. It was that way for like six weeks. And I went to class, 
Cars in the parking lot came out of class and someone backed into it, smashing the quarter panel. All that labor, all that energy, all that time made futile in a moment of time. Ever have something like that happen? This is the curse of labor. Then there's the additional problem that things rot and rust if you don't do anything with them. That car rusted and rotted a long time ago. The curse of sin has made labor a vexation. It's toil, it's grief, it's full of sorrow. Satisfaction is temporary, someone else reaps the benefits. And yet we find that there is yet a shadow of God's original design because there is also a blessing. Remember that Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and they were busy from the very first day of their life. There was work to do. There was labor. And it was good to do it. It actually was a reflection of God's very character because remember God worked for seven or six days and the seventh day he rested. So labor is a reflection of God himself who worked. Genesis 1.28 records Adam's initial job description. Genesis 1.28, which says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the, fish of the sea, over the fowls of the heavens, over every animal that moves on the earth. There's his job description. You're to have dominion. You've got work to do. Genesis 2, 19 through 20, which, remember Genesis 2 is an expansion on the sixth day, tells us one of the first tasks that he had to do. Now remember, he's not even a day old yet. And here's one of his jobs. Out of the ground, the God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. And man gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Very first day of existence, he got to name all the animals. He had work. And his job after that, rule over the earth, the first task being name the animals, but now oversee them. Oversee the garden. Tend to the garden. Be responsible for the garden. There's work to do. It was good for him to do it. It wasn't cursed. Now, many scriptures talk about the value and importance of labor in doing a job well done. Solomon's negative aspect towards labor is contrasted in the same book with a value of it. Again, look at Ecclesiastes. So keep something marked there. We're going back and forth. Ecclesiastes 2.24. Now, the verses just preceding this, he talked about how his labor is vain. But here in verse 24, he says something different. There is nothing better for man but that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This I also saw that it was from the hand of God for who can eat or who can have enjoyment without him. So even my labor in the curse and the vanity of it, I still see God's hand is still there. What production is coming out is still God's hand. He recognized the curse of sin had, been, had made labor difficult but and without the rewards that should have been there, and yet labor is still a gift of God to men. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy their time. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. 
Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime, moreover that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. So while it's cursed, it's still a gift. There is still a shadow of this gracious, wonderful thing that God has given to us, work, labor. And we all need to recognize that and we should thank him for it. There's no disgrace in honest work. There is disgrace in dishonest gain and idleness. We'll be looking at some of these Proverbs again in a few weeks when we talk about what Proverbs say about finances. But Proverbs 10.2 says, Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. There's not honor in gaining whatever you have in a wrong way. Proverbs 13.11 says, Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but the one who gathers by labor increases it. There's some honor in labor. There's a great honor in honest labor. Did you know that work is also a remedy for all sorts of maladies, including poverty, sickness, and melancholy? Proverbs 14.23 says, In all labor there is profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Labor. Proverbs 16.26, A worker's appetite works for him. His hunger urges him on. Maybe that's why Paul said, If a man doesn't work, need to let him eat. His hunger will drive him on to do what is right before God. Go find some work and labor. The Apostle Paul did say that those who do not provide for their families are worse than infidels. 1 Timothy 5.8 And again, those unwilling to work shouldn't eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 Ephesians 4.28 has a very interesting statement. It starts off as, Let him who steals steal no longer, but let him labor. But then it goes on and says, Why? Not only provide yourself, it says, in order to have something to share with those in need. So I don't labor just for myself. I labor so that I actually have the means by which to help those who have a real need. Now, our society has lost its um, Puritan work ethic. That was a major factor which made America great. We're still living on some of the legacy, but it's not there anymore. Employers constantly are striving to find just a worker that will show up on time and do their job for the day. They don't even have to be accessible. Just be there. And it's harder and harder to find. Now, the Puritans succeeded because they understood that God desired them to be diligent workers. They looked to God for the direction of their life, and that included work. It's interesting, they did not work to succeed. They succeeded because they worked. It was simply the fruit of what they were as people. Their character drove them to that, and hence their success. George Fuhrman reports the following sarcastic notice seen at a company. Here's how bad it can get out there. And this is very sarcastic. To all employees... Due to increased competition and a desire to stay in business, we find it necessary to institute a new policy. We are asking that somewhere between starting and quitting time, and without infringing too much on the time usually devoted to lunch periods, 
coffee breaks, rest periods, storytelling, ticket selling, vacation planning, and the rehashing of yesterday's TV programs that each employee endeavor to find some time that can be set aside and be known as the work break. <laughs> Labor is the gift of God. Yes, it is cursed. Yes, there's a lot of vanity, but it is still the gift of God. We need to be thankful for it, and we should endeavor to please the Lord as we do it. In fact, our attitude in labor is as important as our doing it. There is a proper labor we're to have before the Lord. First, as Christians, we are to follow the Lord's example. Now, all indications are that Jesus labored in the family carpenter business until the time he began public ministry. Scripture tells he's around 30. That means that for the majority of his life, because he would have started working in the family shop at a very young age, he would apprentice with his father, learning how to deal with the various tools and how to put together a chair or a table or fix things using doing carpentry. That means most of his life, Jesus worked as a carpenter, skilled labor. Now that says a whole lot about the value of work, doesn't it? Three years in public ministry, but all those years beforehand, 15, 20 years, skilled labor. God valued it. Jesus valued it. We find that during his public ministry, he labored hard. It was his habit to get up before sunrise and go off by himself to pray. He traveled all over the nation. Remember, they didn't have cars or even bicycles. He usually didn't even get a donkey. There's only a couple places that's even recorded that he had a donkey and got to ride. Most places, you walk. And he walked all over the nation. And he was busy doing ministry, healing people of their diseases, sicknesses, casting out demons, teaching and preaching all over the nation. And all of that is physically demanding. In fact, in Matthew 8.24, it records that Jesus had become so physically tired that he slept in the boat in the middle of Lake Gennesaret during a storm. So a little boat bouncing all over the place. The disciples thought they were going to get swamped and die, and he's fast asleep. That's tired. There's physical labor involved in all that he was doing. A second reason our attitude is important and a second motivation and model for us is that a true Christian serves Jesus in all our work. Not long ago, we were teaching through the book of Colossians. You might recall from Colossians chapter 3, 23 and 24, we had talked about work. In that passage, Paul says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So regardless of who signs your paycheck, you actually work for Jesus, don't you? That's your boss. Are you laboring in a manner worthy of him? Does your attitude toward your work reflect that truth, that he's your boss? Now, the curse of sin has given labor a negative aspect. And we work hard and we sweat and we find it's a constant battle against all sorts of problems. And the fruits of our labor are short-lived at best. That's, again, all part of this curse of sin. But labor, again, is also a good thing. It's a gift of God by which we earn our living. We enable 
other, uh, by our working, we're enabled to help others when they need something. We can serve others. We serve God. And Jesus set the example for us in work. So regardless of what kind of job you have, Christ is your boss, you ultimately serve him. And that's why 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight can apply here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So no matter what the task is, we work for God. We work for Christ. He's our boss. Who are you working for? You need to think about that. Well, when we're not laboring, we have something we call leisure. And that often is on people's mind at Labor Day because for a lot of you, tomorrow is not a day of labor. It will be a day of leisure. And so I want to address that. What do you do for leisure? Now, only a couple of generations ago, there would have been very little consideration for leisure because the labor of daily existence took up so much time. You just didn't have it. You'd get up early in the morning, you'd do your chores, and you would labor until late in the evening. Uh, A farmer has to take care of the animals every day. There is no day off. The animals aren't taking a day off. You've got to feed them and milk them and whatever else you've got to do. You've got to care for them. There's always labor to do. And let's face it, some of you do get up this early. If you get up at 4 a.m., how late do you want to stay up at night? Not too late, right? Labor took up your day, so leisure... They'd look at you, what is that? Well, that's what we do on Sunday. Because that's the only day they would have off. Now, Christians have responded in many ways to the idea of leisure. Some don't have time for it. They're busy doing whatever. Uh, Some have condemned it. I've heard people use Ephesians 5.16 as biblical proof. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Therefore, you should never have leisure. There are others who take the opposite view, and they see leisure as... Well, this is the proof that God has blessed my life. Look how much leisure I've got. Well, actually, both those views are extreme and contradictory to what the Scriptures actually say. The Bible gives us balance to life, and that's important. God himself sets the pattern that he rested on the seventh day, right? He worked six. He rested on the seventh, Genesis 2, 22, uh, verse 2. Jesus also made it clear in Matthew, or, um, Mark seven twenty seven that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That was part of his correction to the Pharisees. God had instituted this for our benefit. We need it. We need a day of rest. And so the Sabbath actually fulfilled a dual purpose. First, it allowed man a rest from his labor so he could focus his attention on worship of God. And that's why throughout the Old Testament you'll find statements such as in Exodus 20.10 that it was a holy day. Or Leviticus 6.31 or 16.31 that it was a day of solemn rest in which they might humble their souls. Because it takes time to be still and know that he is God as Psalm 46.10 calls us to do. Now let's face it, if you're not walking well with the Lord, the idea of being quiet before God can be kind of scary, Right? But if we're walking well with them, we, we long for that time to set aside the busyness of normal chores and everyday life and just spend time with God, being quiet before him, contemplating him, reading his word and listening to him through that. 
Some people are so scared by the idea of being alone with God that they stay extremely active or at least distract themselves. And so if you go over their house, there's always something on. Radio, TV, music, something. They don't want to be left alone with God. But we need that, don't we? To be still before him, to take a rest from the normal stuff, to contemplate him. The Sabbath, we were told in Exodus 31, 16, was a day to be celebrated. It was a holy convocation, Leviticus 23, 3, a special day in which people would gather to worship. I'm often asked them, why do we worship on Sunday? It's not the Sabbath, that was yesterday. We worship because in the New Testament, we find they started meeting on the first day of the week, not the seventh day, in honor of the Lord's resurrection. That's the only reason we meet on Sunday. This actually isn't the Sabbath. But you can use it as your day of rest. We meet in honor of the Lord's resurrection on Sunday. But we all still need this idea of a day of rest. Now, some people work Sunday. I've been working Sundays for several decades now. But I still need a day of rest too. I enjoy coming together. This is a day of worshiping God. But there's also times you need to rest. This is part of what Scripture says about leisure. And that's the second point here. Man needs a physical and mental break from continual labor. And you all know that intuitively. If you've ever had a job where you know, something comes up and you end up working several weeks in a row, you know what your productivity is like at the end of it. There's been social science studies that have shown this. The longer someone works, the more days in a row, the productivity goes down because fatigue sets in. Mentally, you can't concentrate anymore. Physically, you're running on fumes. We all know that. God has designed man with a need for leisure. We need it. Now, the question before us today, then, is not about the need for the time off of work. We understand that. But what should you do with that time off? What is or what is not proper leisure? Labor is cursed, but yet God still has a shadow of blessing within it. We understand we need leisure, but what do we do with it? Now, there are several interesting words that are used to bring out the idea of leisure in the Scripture. The first one is eukareo. It's cognate noun, eukarea. It can be translated as opportunity, seasonable time, spend time, or leisure. There's a very interesting usage. It's in Mark chapter 6 of this term, and actually another related term, Mark chapter 6, verse 31. And to give Jay a thrill here, the ESV translate this as, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going and they had no leisure. That's where this word occurs. A lot of your translations uh, say rest or time, but the word actually there is leisure, even to eat. Now think about a minute. They were so busy, they did not have enough leisure time to get something to eat. That's pretty busy, isn't it? That's very busy. Now perhaps you feel like that at times. It's a very strange reality of our society. We have so much leisure time available to us, down through history they'd be aghast. They'd just, they'd be like, How? What do you mean leisure time? How can you have so much time away from work? What do you mean just eight hours a day, five days a week? What kind of job is that? Can I sign up? I'm willing. I'd be, I'd be happy to give away this six-day, 12-hour-a-day job for your eight-hour, five-day-a-week job, right? 
We've got lots of leisure time, and yet our society is addicted to fast food. Why? And we've got microwaves and all sorts of you know, power cookers and things that cook things fast, and we're still addicted to fast food. Because you've got to grab a burger before you get to the game. What? I don't have time because I have another leisure activity I've got to get to. So I don't have time to cook or have a, a meal that's quiet and relaxed and enjoyable. I've got to stuff this thing down and get indigestion. And a lot of companies are making a lot of money off of Tums and Rolaids and all the other stuff as you're rushing from place to place in order to have leisure. Something's not right with this. Can you relate? Another word, let me encourage you here. Take some time, sit down, and have a leisurely meal with your friends and family. And enjoy some time with them instead of rushing through it. Okay, that's part of leisure. We actually find that in that verse. They didn't have leisure even to eat. Take some leisure time to eat. Another word used in the same verse here in Mark 6.31 is anapao, and it's translated as rest or be refreshed. It can also refer to ceasing from any movement, keeping quiet, or even in its aspect of sleep. Mark 14.41 uses it that way. Here we see that Jesus saw a need to cease from their labor a while in order to recover, to collect their strength. All of us need that time to get away, even if it's for a day or two, to collect our strength, to actually rest. And yet again, we have to be careful for some people expend more energy playing during their vacation than they do at work. They come home vacation tired from laboring at leisure so that they're not refreshed. They're wiped out. We need to be careful about this. There is a balance to life. and Sometimes we're not doing too well at the balancing of it. Another related word is the noun katapausis, and it refers to a place of rest, and the verb katapau means to give rest or take rest. That's the word used in Hebrews 4, verses 4, 8, and 10 to refer to Genesis 2, 2, when God rested from his labor. He ceased from his work of creation and was quiet on the seventh day. And that's the pattern he set for us to follow. Again, the Sabbath day was made for who? Man. God didn't need it. We needed it. So he set a pattern for us. There are times we need rest, actual rest. Now, God has stated that proper leisure is good, but... What kind of leisure activities are acceptable to him? Now, it should be obvious to everybody that some leisure activities are beneficial, uh, some are neutral, and some are probably detrimental to your physical, emotional, or spiritual health. So we need to be careful what we do. Here are some self-evaluating questions for you to use in considering any particular activity. First, uh, why do you want to do it? What's its purpose? Is it going to build you up? Are others up in Christ? Is it going to be a help or a hindrance to holy living? And I believe these are in your notes. already printed for you. Another question. Would it cause others to stumble? Does it bring you into bondage or cause you to lose control? That's improper for a Christian. Is it something morally positive, neutral, or negative? Obviously, it's negative. It's not something you want to do. Are you using it as a covering for your own sin? Does it violate your conscience? 
Would you do it if Jesus was with you? But Jesus said he's always with us, isn't he? Will it glorify God? Now, those are good questions. They're good questions to always be asking yourself when you're considering anything, right? They're pretty general. Let's apply these to some of the more common things done in leisure time. How about sports? Now, it's fine to attend or participate in a sports activity. In fact, a lot of us probably need to be more participatory rather than being spectators because our bodies are getting flabby because we're not doing much exercise, right? So sports can be fine. Sports can provide a outreach opportunities, right? Christians, you're interacting with non-Christians. It's a good opportunity to get to know them, to befriend them, and share the gospel with them. But take advantage of the opportunity. That's usually the problem with a lot of sports activities. It's an outreach effort, and no one ever mentions anything about Christ. If you don't mention anything about Christ, I'm sorry, it's not an outreach effort. You're just going out and having a good time like everybody else, which is okay. But don't claim it's something else. But it could be an outreach effort. Uh, Sports can also be used for teaching positive values, such as commitment, self-discipline, teamwork. Those are all good things about sports, right? But if winning becomes a priority in the sport, then poor sportsmanship is taught, including things like selfishness, cheating, grumbling, anger, even violence. Spectators even have to be careful of that because... What about those you're sitting with? Other fans who may be drunk, foul-mouthed, insulting, or depending on what game you are, it could be more violent in the stands than it is out on the, on the field. There are some nations I don't think I would want to go to a soccer game for fear of what will happen after the game, whether your team wins or loses. My brother, uh, through a series of events, he and his wife are Kings fans, and they flew out for the playoffs earlier this year. And uh, anybody who followed that, you know the Kings did not win against the Devils when they were out here. Okay, so the Devils won. And my brother said he could not believe how rude. He said about every fourth person was cursing him, because he had his Kings shirt on, and the Devils won. And he even confronted one guy, he came back, he's like, what would you guys have done if you had lost? Who knows? So be careful what kind of situation you're getting yourself into. There also has to be a caution about the amount of time and finances committed to a sport because it can become consuming like any hobby, even to the point that basic responsibilities to others and God are neglected. I have seen where people will go into debt to pursue their sports activity. Marriages get strained. I've seen families drop out of church because of sports interests. They've got to be at that sports game. Next thing you know, they're not even coming anymore. It's fine to use as leisure for sports as long as you're cautious, properly so. What about games? Well, they're similar to sports, but they require less physical activity, often some mental effort, and the recreation is often found in uh, beating chance or showing some superior strategy against the opponent. And there's all sorts of games, right? There's card games and video games and board games and mental challenges, or you know, like maze and crossword puzzles. Uh, There's fantasy games. There's all sorts of games, right? Well, evaluate games. The same cautions we talked about before need to apply. But consider some other things specific to your game. For example, there's a lot of games that take in uh, chance, and there's gambling involved with it. Now, the Bible is very clear about stewardship. Again, we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. But gambling is unwise at best and often can be evil. 
Okay, so we have to be very cautious about it. Uh, one person even quipped, "The lottery is a tax on the mathematically challenged." Okay. Pursuit of gambling for financial gain is both selfish and refusal to follow, follow God's planning for gaining wealth. And again, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks from Proverbs. So if you like to play a game that involves gambling, then remove the financial aspects. Play for M&Ms or toothpicks or something like that. And then you can still enjoy it, but you remove the financial stuff that's, that's not good for you. There's education games. Um, Math, history, science, languages, uh, typing skills. There's all sorts of games out there to teach things that we need to learn, skills and uh, educational. And yet even those you have to evaluate for truth. Is the educational game actually teaching you truth? If you have some kind of game that's teaching all about dinosaurs but it's pushing evolution on your kids, are you now actually having them learn opposite the worldview you're teaching them? So you've got to correct that. You have to be very careful here. A lot of things get slipped, in, get slipped in unnoticed through that. Now, most games have some moral elements, so evaluate whether they teach godly values. Let's face it, a game that requires you to lie is not a game you should play. Sticky situations is one of those. How you play the game is certainly a factor. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Some games can be played viciously or a fun game of chance. Trouble is one of those. Monopoly. You can play it as a uh, strategic game that, and teach some economic lessons, or you can be a vicious, greedy, obnoxious something that no one wants to play with you twice, right? Well, some of you have played with people like that. You know, we've used both with our children as they were growing up to teach them about moral consequences and moral attitudes. You know, you can't be mean, you can't be revengeful. Uh, you've still got to be nice. There's a virtue in being kind. Winning is not everything, right? You can use games for those kinds of things. Those who like role-playing games, there's some extra caution here. Some are good. Some are neutral. Some are subtly evil. Some are just, I'm sorry, they're just playing openly demonic. So two additional questions for those kinds of games. You have leisure time. Um, what is the fantasy role that you're playing characterized by? What's the moral character of that role? Here's an easier one. Would Jesus play this game with you? If he wouldn't, and you can't imagine him sitting there and doing this game, then guess what? Why are you wasting your leisure time on this? There's so many other things you could do. A negative answer to either of those is it's not appropriate. How about entertainment? A big leisure activity? That would include music, concerts, movies, TV, theater, all that kind of stuff. Very large area of leisure activities. And I'll be talking about more about that in depth in a sermon in the future. But in brief, entertainment needs to be evaluated in all those principles I gave earlier. With extra caution about whatever is the moral message contained in it. One of the best books to help you learn to properly evaluate entertainment is World Amusements by my friend Wayne Wilson. I know there's uh, still a couple copies in the library. But here's some questions to ask whenever you're going to go in and get entertained by something. Is the message of the entertainment good, neutral, or evil? Obviously, the last one means you probably shouldn't be there, right? Is the message compatible with a biblical worldview? 
Are you aware of it? Even if it isn't, can you use it as a teaching opportunity? Remember, the problem with amusement is that your brain checks out. To amuse is to think deeply, to contemplate. To negate it with the letter A means to not think. It's the problem with amusement. You walk in, and now your brain's checked out, and anything comes in. Don't check your brain out at the door when you go into a theater. Is the message truthful? Or are they proclaiming lies, presenting lies as truth? That's true in a lot of movies. They present lies and try and make you think. That's true in the evening news. Does it use evil methods to present its message? Its methodology is important. Because this goes into what we'd call violating the law of love. Would the production of this entertainment actually require someone to send in order to produce it? If so, how is that loving to support it? It's not. Does it denigrate our Lord? And yet, all sorts of entertainment are full of curses and blasphemy against our Lord. Does it stimulate sinful interests? Now, those are questions that should be asked before you go or watch. So read reviews, ask others, check out websites, uh, Cap Alert, Kids in Mind, and... What was it you guys are looking at lately when you could check out a movie? What do you guys go to? What website? Plugged in. Okay, that's a newer one. So there's all sorts of places out there. You can actually find out what it's about before you go so that you're not offended. What about godly leisure? You see, if leisure time, what you have available to you is being able to do what you would like to do instead of what you must do, because at work you must do what the boss says, right? Leisure is when you can do what you would like to do. Then let me challenge you with a different way of using your leisure time. Now, how much do you really want to know God and serve him? Now, there's no better use of leisure time than in Bible study, prayer, and serving the Lord. Use whatever spiritual gifts he's entrusted to you. When you add the fact that God desires us to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil or ignorant in what is evil, Romans 16, 19, then what would be wise of us to use our leisure time would be to pursue those things that will help in our understanding of God and practicing righteousness. Things that will help us refrain from doing evil, right? Does that make sense? Now, people often will tell me, well, you know, I, I don't have time to read my Bible or, or study, and, you know, it's really difficult to squeeze out some time to pray and, and serving the Lord. Well, you know, I, I do my little thing at Awana or something else. I got, you know, one evening I do a little something. Um, and yet you ask a few questions and you find out all these other things I just talked about, sports, entertainment, games, all that kind of stuff, why do they have time for that like every evening? Every day they've got lots of time attributed to that. Hours every day they may be watching television or they're involved with some hobby and hours and hours and hours. Every day they're involved with these things, but they don't have time to study, read their Bible, to pray, and to serve the Lord. What's wrong with that picture as Christians? I'd expect that from the world. What about us as Christians? See, it really starts coming down to a matter of priorities for us. What is really important to you? You see, God wants you to have leisure. And 
one of the great blessings of the kind of technological society we have now is it allows us to have a lot of leisure time. But are we using it in a wise way? Now, the very fact that you are here this morning tells me that learning about God is important to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Uh, you'd be out doing something else this weekend, right? But you're here. So it tells me you do have an interest here. But where does that end? Does it continue past Sunday morning? Are you balanced in your leisure activities or does selfishness hinder you from keeping really God's priorities? That becomes my challenge. Leisure is not something you deserve. It's a God-given blessing for which he expects you to be a good steward, like everything else that he gives you. Are you thankful for the leisure time you have, whether it's a literal or a lot? Are you marked by gratefulness or complaining? It should be by gratefulness. When you have a job and you got hard labor and you come in and you are tired at night, Proverbs tells us a man's labor gives him rest at night. He sleeps well, right? And a lot of you have been there. You know, you're just so tired. You hit the pillow and you're out and you are sleeping well. Are you thankful for that? Are you also thankful for your leisure time, even if it's only a little time, for what you can do with it? Are you wise with what you're doing with it? Rest is good. It's needed for our bodies, our minds. Jesus needed rest. And yet we're not to be lazy either, right? So rest, but no laziness. Sports, they can be great. A lot of good things can come out of that. Games can be a lot of fun. They can be educational. But there are cautions with all those things. Because if you're not careful, they can suck you in and you will become out of balance, or worse, they'll suck you into sin. All those things can. Entertainment's a nice way to relax, but again, you've got to be careful. What's the message coming? What's the moral values there? Is it evil? Is it bringing you into evil? Are you being careful? I'll even throw this one in. I just talked about how the importance of study. Do you realize that Ecclesiastes 12.12 gives a warning about study? Just to show you that there's a balance here? says, the writing of many books is endless and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. So, yes, we need to be diligent. Awan is all about being an approved workman who's not ashamed, right? Being able to rightly divide the word. We want to learn how to study. But we have to be balanced there too. God gives us that balance. But that balance is not achieved by keeping a schedule activities you do and then making sure you put you know, a little bit into every time slot. Balance comes from learning to maintain godliness so that you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading to do what God's priorities are rather than your own. It's this change of mindset about what life really is. And that's what changes what you do in your leisure time. When your mind changes about what's important because you really want to follow God, what you do for your activities and your hobbies and all the rest, that changes. Now, Ed's not here today, so I can tell a story on him. Okay? But he's heard me tell this many times. When I met Ed... And that'd be like 18 years ago. Uh, Ed was a softball fanatic. He would play about four times a week. Three games was an easy week. Usually it's four games per week with softball. He loved softball. And over the time, 
that we got to know him and he got involved with things kind of on a slow basis. Uh, he took several uh, men's group things that, that we did with him. One was a, a hermeneutics class. You know, how do you study the Bible? And he started learning. He could actually take this book and, and he could read it and study it and he could come to his own convictions. He didn't have to believe something because, well, so-and-so told me, therefore I'll believe it. A lot of pastors may like this. I don't. I don't like it when you quote, pastor says, it doesn't matter what I say. This is what's important. If you say, pastor showed me this verse and this verse says, that's okay. That's good. That's what I'm here for. But Ed started learning that. He'll show up for a softball game once in a while because he feels like he should do something for the team. But you kind of drag him out there now. What does he want to do? He wants to study. That's his hobby. It switched on him. And what switched was his desires. The more he learned about God, the more he knew he could actually learn more about God, the more that became his quest in life. And so the things of this world started being set aside. Ed takes his time for leisure, and I'm glad he does. I'm glad he's taken the weekend off and he's up with Randy and Karen up at, at their cabin. And he's having a restful time with his family and, and the Ryans. That's proper. It's good. And I, when I, I wished him well on Saturday morning when he came by to do some stuff for the church before he was taken off that morning. But something switched in his life. God became more important than softball. That's a challenge for you this morning. Labor is curse, but it's a gift of God. He has allowed us to live in a time when we have all sorts of leisure time. Use it wisely. What you do with that time is going to arise completely out of what you believe is important. And so what you do with that time reveals a lot about you. Include Bible study. Include prayer. Include serving him. But also know you have physical and mental limitations. Make sure you get the rest you need as well. And that includes whatever you have planned for tomorrow.